Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hi everyone, Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth here at Petro Medical. Now, many of us wonder what it was like to take the first surgical robotic system, the Da Vinci system, not only through FDA, but find a place for it in the market and prove out its clinical value. Well, many of you may know this, uh, that Dr. Fred, Frederick Mall, who's the co-founder of Intuitive Surgical and also co-founded Oris Health, which was recently acquired by Johnson Johnson, sits on our board of directors. And fortunately, we were able to get connected with a general surgeon who first trialed the Da Vinci surgical system. That was Dr. Barry N. Gardner. Now, Dr. Gardner is a general surgeon, still practices here in the Bay Area. And we went out to his office out in the East Bay to catch up with him. He pioneered the introduction and development of laparoscopic surgery back in the early 90s. So he had a natural gift and passion for finding better ways to do surgery and deliver uh, a higher quality of care for patients. Now, Dr. Gardner served as the principal investigator for the clinical trial of the Da Vinci system back in Mexico City and testified before the FDA panel meeting in 1999, which resulted in the FDA clearing the Da Vinci surgical system for general laparoscopic use. Now, as they say, the rest is history. Now, Dr. Gardner has a vast experience in minimally invasive surgical techniques and continues to use them today, where he continued to serve as an advisor to Dr. Mall at Oris Health. So in this episode, we not only cover the history of those early days at Intuitive Surgical, but also what it takes as a physician and an entrepreneur to develop the right type of technology that really pushes the standard of care and the kind of team and mindset you need to deliver those type of results. So without further ado, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, this is Omar M. Khatib, the Director of Growth of, over at Petro Medical, and uh, came out to uh, sunny San Ramon, California to have a very special uh, interview uh, with, <laughs> I think it's a special interview, I, I'm pretty excited about this, but um, with, with a surgeon who really had the opportunity to uh, get his hands early on some exciting technology that really revolutionized the way surgery is done, so Dr. Barry Gardner, thank you for joining us. You bet. So, I guess, you know, great first question to start is, how did, how did you get into medicine? How did it all start for you? Well, it started when I was in the sixth grade. My dad, uh, I was very close with my father. And uh, he got rheumatic fever. And this was at a time when they were just coming out with the uh, heart-lung machine. Mm -hmm. And they were starting to do some uh, cardiac surgery um, for rheumatic heart disease. And uh, I looked at that and I thought, well, that's what I want to do. I think probably uh, in the back of my mind, uh, kind of thinking I would save my father's life, I think. So it was a, it was a very pure, uh, very idealistic uh, path that I followed. Mm. And so that got you started into medicine. Now your, your father, what, was he a physician as well? or No, he was an amusement park operator. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. and he was uh, he was a um, a real Renaissance guy. He was one of the one of the brightest people that I ever had the encounter to run up against, and uh, he could do a little bit of everything. 
He was a real Renaissance man. Yeah. Well, funny enough, you know, you chose general surgery, and you know, especially depending on where you're located, you have to be a bit of a Renaissance man or woman to be a good general <laughs> surgeon, right? Well, a little bit, I guess. I, I, um, I, I when I went to medical school, I was uh, planning on staying the path toward the cardiac surgery. And in medical school, you start to rotate through different services, and uh, I rotated through the cardiac surgery service, and uh, I was treated pretty badly by some pretty arrogant physicians. And I began to look at it and say, do I really want to associate myself with people like that for the rest of my life? And it, I had just the opposite in experience with the general surgeons. They were very receptive, very warm, very uh, education-oriented and uh, supportive. And so I, I switched midstream. Interesting. Well, you know, one thing it, it, you, I, I seem to find is that it's very often that physicians pick their specialty based on, you know, the people that they get introduced in that specialty. Oh, I think that's true. I, you know, I think you, you, if you have a, a positive relationship and a personal relationship with people in that specialty, it tends to um, want you to, or you tend to want to gravitate to that, to that field, I think. That's pretty, that's pretty common. So when you were rotating through Gen Surge, what, what did you see that kind of gave you that aha moment that said, you know, I think I'm home. I, I, this is what I need to pursue. Um, I think it was largely the, the, which we're beginning to lose now in the specialty, but it was uh, the broad cross-section of surgical disease that we would interface with. Um, you know, we could do hysterectomies, you could do nephrectomies, you could uh, operate on the colon or the stomach or the gallbladder and uh, uh, breast surgery and head and neck surgery. So it was a, it was an all-encompassing specialty, mm. um, at least when I started. It isn't anymore, but when I started, it was that way. We have all these subspecialties now, yeah. picking on the gen, gen surgeons. Yeah, they are. I mean, <laughs> you know, general surgery as a specialty is 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 beginning to wither away. You know, we we've lost the colon surgery to the colon and rectal guys. We've lost the uh, nephrectomies to the urologists. We've lost breast surgery to the female breast surgeons. Uh, lost head and neck surgery to the ENT people, and. Um, I, I can remember when I was uh, was a resident, uh, the the flexible colonoscope had just come out, and we were very busy, and uh, we didn't see much utility between or for a, a flexible tube that you would put inside the colon, and so we basically gave that up to the gastroenterologists. We'll look at them now. That gave birth to their whole industry, <laughs> yeah, right, pretty much. Yeah. Right. So. And, and and technology plays into that too, of course, because when when the flexible colonoscope was uh, developed, it was purely a diagnostic tool. Well, now of course it's therapeutic as well. So uh, things change, industry and uh, evolution and innovation changes, but uh, it has certainly impacted my specialty, probably from a surgical point of view, as much a a as any, I think, if not more. You know, uh, and I don't want to, I don't want to uh, put you on the spot here. But let's say so before, and we definitely want to get into the intuitive Da Vinci years. But let's say before, before the intuitive robot came out, what was the most, I guess, groundbreaking, groundbreaking and paradigm shifting technology that came into general surgery? Prior to intuitive. Prior to intuitive. Um, 
we um, did open surgery um, and had been doing open surgery for generations, the same way that uh, generations of surgeons were taught to do that. Probably the thing that was um, the most uh, impactful was the development of nutritional support with uh, with uh, total parenteral nutrition. Um, absent the technological advances, sure. you know, um, that, that robotics has has introduced, but. Prior to that, it was really um, general surgery hadn't changed for generations uh, un until the advent of uh, total parental nutrition and we were able to keep people alive and do things for them that uh, therefore, you know, we, we couldn't because they'd starve to death. Um, from a technical point of view, that's probably the biggest, the biggest impact prior to the advent of electromechanically controlled instruments. Got it. And so, with with uh, with that innovation, did you know you're able to keep patients on the bed for a little bit longer? Do you feel like that was a big stepping stone to allow surgeons to start explore laparoscopic surgery? Um, probably, actually, not. I, I think the um, the Advent of laparoscopic surgery really uh, came about primarily from the gynecologists. They were um, the first to really use the laparoscope and got the idea that you could put a tube into somebody's abdomen and then inflate the abdomen and you could actually see in there. Um, but um, they were really only able to do uh, tubal ligations was really what it was pretty much limited to because you uh, as a surgeon had to look through the scope with with uh, your eye holding the camera I mean holding the uh, the telescope with your hand that meant you only had one hand to operate with and nobody else could see anything you're the only one that could see and so you really are a one-handed surgeon. And so, you know, if you envision trying to tie your shoe with one hand, you're pretty limited. And that was true with surgery. Uh, uh, I mean, laparoscopic surgery had been in existence for a long time, but it was very limited in terms of its uh, applicability because you couldn't use an assistant and you could only use one hand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, while you were in residency, you got exposed to a variety of different procedures as, as gen surgeon, general surgeons did back in, like, as my dad says, the good old days. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think we all are kind of <laughs> pine for those days, I think. It's, it's funny. I, you know, even, even new surgical residents now, friends of mine who went into gen surgery, they talk about those days. And I'm like, if you've only been a resident for a couple of years, they're like, yeah, but we were allowed to do more back then. <laughs> what, what were some of the uh, procedures you got most excited about doing when you were a resident? Oh yeah, you know, in general, when you're when you're a uh, first in training, the bigger the case, the more the more interesting it was, the more challenging it was, and the, the more awe-inspiring it was. Really, I mean, some of the things that we would do with the, you know, take out somebody's rectum and uh, colon, and then look at the in the field and recognize gee we don't have point a and connected to point b how are we going to do that you know mm -hmm. and and taking something that is um, a threat to the patient excising it and then reconstructing 
um, the anatomy was probably the fascination that uh, that I had mm -hmm. with uh, surgery. And when you you know general surgery, it's it. I think the uh, from history, it's very much treated like an apprenticeship, and uh, you know you have it's very important to have a, a strong mentor. Uh, who, who were some of your mentors when you were a surgeon? Well, they're on the wall back there. Oh. <laughs> oh that, yeah, Dr. Dr. Blaisdell at uh, UCSF and Dr. Dunphy and Dr. Hunt, um, you know, Dr. Lim. What were some of the most, uh, I guess, valuable lessons that, that you got? I'm sure there's many, but... You know, do you mind sharing a, a few that uh, kind of influenced your career as a surgeon? I think the most valuable lesson that I ever had was from Dr. Dunphy. And we used to have a, a, um, a surgical GI conference every Friday mm -hmm. up on the ninth floor at uh, UCSF. And he had just come on as the chief of surgery there, and actually I was the first internship class that he uh, had uh, selected. At any rate, we would have this uh, medical surgical GI conference, and it was set up so that uh, all of the attendings were there, and they would sit in the front row, and then the, the residents would sit behind that, and then the medical students would sit behind that, mm -hmm. and they would present challenging cases. And then typically what they would do, they present the case, and then they would go around and ask the most inexperienced people first, and then move to the more experienced and finally get to the chief about, well, how should you handle this problem? And they presented a, uh, the, the chief resident presented this patient with a uh, pancreatic fistula. And... Uh, he uh, had struggled with through multiple operations, and they finally had gotten this down to a uh, to a fistula from the pancreas. And so they presented this case, and uh, and they then brought the patient in, and uh, Dr. Dunphy, um, just as a mentor. Uh, he would always ask the patient, I, you know, he'd introduce himself and then ask the patient, may I examine you? That made a big impression on me. I mean, I, asking the patient permission, that, that's novel. I hadn't been seeing anybody do that. And uh, so he uh, uh, exposed the patient's abdomen, and there was a four-by-four four bandage on the, on the patient's abdomen. And so Dr. Dunphy put a pair of gloves on, which also was a, a good object lesson. He didn't say anything about it, but it was uh, uh, the right thing to do. And so he said, man, take this bandage off. And he said, yeah, sure. So he took the bandage off and looked at it, and there was a little spot on the bandage, just a little tiny spot. And so he put it back down, and he said, when was this changed? And he said, oh, last night. He said, thank you very much. And this guy had had half a dozen operations and, and uh, darn near uh, died through some of them. At any rate, they went through and asking all the residents and uh, what they do and the attendants and everybody was talking about, well, you need to take his pancreas out, you need to do a pusto, you need to do a whipple, you need to do, you know, these extensive uh, threatening operations. And then finally got to Dr. Dunphy. Doctor <laughs> I'll never forget it. 
the the uh, chief resident, it was actually Dr. W uh, Larry Way at the time at UC, he said, well, Dr. Dunphy, what would you do? And he just sat back in his chair and he said, lifetime supply of four by fours. And what that is telling you is not every solution has a surgical, um, not every problem has a surgical solution. And they had gotten this guy down after years and years of suffering to just a little tiny Band-Aid that they had on his abdomen and you're gonna put him through a life-threatening uh, operation just to stop that little bit of drainage? Don't do it. So my takeaway from that was there are times to shield your, sheath your scalpel and not use it. And sometimes the best thing to do is to say no. I'm sure Sir William Wilson would have been very proud yeah. at that moment yeah. if he heard that. Yeah. So, and I think he, he was the one who said the physician's first duty is to educate the masses not to take medicine. Um, and, you know, the old Hippocratic oath, first do no harm. Absolutely. You know? And, and at, at any rate, that, that's the kind of training that I had. Wow. Would you say that that's a, um, a mark of a, of a good surgeon, which is to, you know, to exhaust all options before taking a patient to surgery? Well, I, I think within reason, sure, sure. Uh, I mean, I think Dr. Dunphy was, was uh, known for his surgical judgment, not necessarily his surgical flash and, and uh, panache as an operating surgeon, but as a, as a, a real clinician. And now, after you finished your, your training, you, you, um, you served as a surgeon in the military, correct? Yeah. You tell, tell, can you do you mind sharing, sharing a little bit about that? Well, I, I, um, um, I came along at, the, at the, the time of the Vietnam War, and I was in residency during the Vietnam War. And there was a program called the Berry Program that if you were selected for that, you, the, the, milita the uh, military would defer you and not draft you until after you finished training. And then when you finished training, you'd go into the military as a surgeon. So I was selected for the Berry Plan, and so I finished my residency, but then I had a commitment to, uh, to go into the military after that. And... Um, I got stationed at Letterman, uh, which now is shut down. But um, Letterman was a uh, was a teaching hospital within the army system, and that's where I had been had been stationed. And they put me in charge of their surgical research lab. Um, it was called Lair, the Letterman Army Institute of Research, and. Uh, I, I spent a couple years there basically working on the formation of cholesterol gallstones. Um, I was never, I didn't ever fit into the military very well. I actually, um, uh, I never actually got a uniform, complete uniform, much to the chagrin of my commanding officer. And I, can, I remember one day I was walking from the, from the, Research Institute across to the hospital, and they, they, um, you, you, if you had a, if you had a white coat on, you had what they call cover, and you, you didn't need to wear your hats and things. Well, I had this, this hat on, 
you know, it's one of those hats that is pointed in the front and pointed in the back, and it says your insignia. I was a major at the time, and I was, uh, I had my hat on, had my, had my uh, white coat on, and I was walking over to the hospital, and I saw this other dude coming up from a different pathway, and, and we were going to meet. And I could see that he had all sorts of ribbons and stuff on his chest. I didn't know what that was. I just knew that I didn't want to have to salute him. So I sped up and got ahead of him. And I was walking along, and I thought, well, I, I beat that one. I'm on the way to the hospital, and all of a sudden I hear, Major! <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I turned around and said, yes, sir. Well, he was a sergeant. And, and uh, he put his, hand, his arm around me, and he says, whispered in my ear, he says, you got your hat on backwards. <laughs> that was my life in the military. <laughs> how long? How long? How long did you serve? Uh, three years. Wow. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your service. Well, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't do anything like what you see these guys doing now. Yeah. Those are people that we ought to thank for their service. Their service. Absolutely. Did you enjoy Mash when it came out, or was that kind of? A little bit, yeah. It was a fun yeah, show. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, everybody says I look like Alan Alda. I don't see that, but, you know, maybe in my I, younger days. <laughs> I, you know, I can I can kind of see that, actually. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, of everybody, of all the characters and people in MASH, I mean, you you want to look like Hawkeye, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, you finished uh, your training, you went to the military, and you're out, and you, you start private practice. And you, you start your private practice uh, here in California? Yeah, I started in Oakland. In Oakland, mm -hmm. Oakland. Yeah, that's been so, 30 years ago or 40 years ago now, a long time ago. And you now I'm sure, you know, people listening to us, they're, they're eager for this, this part of the uh, uh, conversation to open up. But what was your practice like, and at what point did you meet Fred Mall? Where, where did those cro crossroads hit? Well... What happened is um, this was just at the advent of, lapar of video laparoscopy. And what year? What year was this? This was oh, God. like sometime in the mid nineties. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And um, we had a um, we had a, a an endemic population in Oakland of. Patients that had gallstones through through the, the the Native American population, and that it is a very common problem that they have. And so I had a huge experience with with cholecystectomies, and it um, you know the typical cholecystectomy was done through a six or eight inch incision, and the patients would have nasogastric tubes in, and and uh, it was a big deal. And as I got more and more experience and more and more comfortable with the operation, I started to shrink the incision down a mm. bit. And one of the assistants that I had one day, she, she says, I was uh, doing this through a little tiny incision, probably an inch and a half long. And the assistant said, God, you're going to be doing these with a laparoscope if you get the incision any smaller, smaller than that. Well, right about that time, Eddie Joe Reddick uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, had done the first laparoscopic cholecystectomy, and the th the the thing that facilitated that was the addition of a high definition color television camera to the telescope. 
prior to that, you'd have to look through the scope and you'd have to hold the scope with one hand so you only had one hand to, to, to operate with and, you, and nobody else could see. When you attach the television camera to that scope, that enabled somebody else to hold the camera so that they could move your field of view to where you needed it. So now you had two hands. You could put additional punctures in, put additional instruments in. Now you had two hands to work with, and you could bring in an assistant. And that's what really enabled the, the laparoscopic revolution was the was the union of the high definition color television camera which they've been using in industry for years to the laparoscope and once you did that that freed us up to be able to really do surgery we could do more than now just a tubal ligation and so of course we started with the laparoscopic cholecystectomy so i went i, I i'd heard about this i'd heard what eddie joe was up to and i called him and that was a time he was not so busy that he wouldn't answer. He answered the phone, and uh, I, he was describing what he was doing. And he said, well, why don't you come on back here, and I'll show you what I'm up to. Well, so I flew back to, to Nashville and watched Eddie Joe do his third and fourth laparoscopic cholecystectomy. And when, as a surgeon who was used to open surgery, to see the first videoscopic surgical procedure being done was more than eye-opening. It was revolutionary to me because, you, you, you know, I watched him do his first case and then do his second case. And by the time he'd done his second case, the first case had been sent home. And I said, this is going to change the way we do surgery. So, um, I must have given you goosebumps. Oh, it was it was an unbelievable. I, you know, that's one of those experiences in your profession that you will never ever forget. Um, it was a stunning, stunning thing. I mean, you know, now we take it for granted, but back then, it was to, to take this gallbladder out through these punctures with a television camera using a television camera. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Yeah. So. On the way back to the uh, back home, I, I said, "I have got to learn how to do this." So, did it scare you at all? The idea? No, no. You were slightest. just excited. Oh no! It was, it was, you could just see the potential. It was just written all over it. And so, I went back to the hospital, and in the basement of our hospital, we, I, I had the the uh, head nurse get me a camera and a laparoscope, and. Uh, I started to practice. I'd, I'd get cow livers and I'd put them in the box and I'd uh, put scopes in this uh, cardboard box and I'd put my instruments in there and we'd uh, I'd operate and and I did that enough so that I was then pretty comfortable that I was safe and I knew what I was doing. Um, at that point, we didn't even have a clip applier. You know, now they've got uh, clip appliers that are automatic. It will uh, go through the laparoscope. At that point, there wasn't a clip applier that went through a laparoscope, so we had to make one, kind of mm -hmm. jerry-rig one. But I did all that, and, and I was comfortable that I was going to be able to do this. And so I then I, I went up to my uh, to the to the uh, head nurse in the operating room and said, uh, "There's this new operation uh, I, I wanted wanted." 
do this. They're taking the gallbladder out with the laparoscope. And she says, oh, I've kind of heard about that. Um, uh, why don't you just go up and talk to the medical staff office and just be sure that that's okay. So I went up to the medical staff office and talked to them, and they said, well, that sounds okay, but you know, maybe you just ought to talk to the chief of surgery. And so I went and talked to the chief of surgery, and he said, well, that sounds okay, but maybe we ought to have a meeting. And by that time, I thought, this isn't going well. Um, and at any rate, so I had the meeting, and I'd, I had videos from Eddie Joe, and I told them what I'd done, and that I was all ready to do this. And they said, well, this should never be done in a community hospital. It ought to be done in a university hospital, and no, you can't do it. So I thought, so I left that meeting. I, oh, okay. Um, so I called Dr. Blaisdell, up on the wall there, and I said, Bill, Barry here. <laughs> <laughs> and I told him the story, and he said, well, why don't you come up and, uh, and uh, do it up here? You can work with Dr. Bruce Wolf, And um, he's up in Sacramento at this point. So I went up, and they put me on staff in Sac at the University of uh, Davis, uh, UC Davis in Sacramento. Um, and we went into the lab and worked it out, and so Bruce and I were comfortable that we could do this, and so then we started to do cases at uh, UCS, uh, to UC Davis. Um, in the meantime, I had actually gone to Dr. Way at, uh, UC, at UCSF and asked him if we could do it there because it would just make so much more sense, it's not 50 miles away, and he was not interested. And so just, you know, I, I, I hate to interrupt, but just I want to recap for the people listening. So you, you believed in this innovation, you're excited about it, that you went on your own time, started practicing and making you know, boxes with calibers on it just to practice it, yeah. and the fact that you couldn't do it at your hospital motivated you to find a way to drive 50 miles away just, yeah. just to do it. Yeah. See, that's incredibly inspiring. Yeah. And so what happened is, as I mentioned, I had this, I, I had a very large population of, of uh, patients that needed their gallbladder out, I knew that this operation was available, and so I told them, I said, I, you know, if you can hold on for a little bit until we get this set up, we can do it that way instead of this way. And so um, uh, our first patient was actually one of my patients from Oakland. It's a gorgeous, uh, you know, young woman, and took her up to Sacramento and took her gallbladder out. <laughs> I remember after when the gallbladder she came out. I appreciate that small, well, she small decision. You know, she, was, she was a beautiful woman, and uh, yeah, she did. And I can, I can remember we got, the, <laughs> we got the gallbladder out, and there was just a gasp in the operating room, and everybody started to applaud. <laughs> it's really... It was really interesting. But at any rate, so I, I kept going up to Sacramento, and I would help Dr. Wolf with his cases, and I'd bring my cases up. And we got about 50 cases done, and they all had done very well. And so then I thought, well, you know, I'm going to go back again and see if I can get privileges to do these cases at, uh, in my hospital. And eventually we did. Um, uh, the doctors weren't happy about it, and they said, well, we want to make the, the criteria very stiff and, and uh, rigid to, to, have, to get um, credentials. And I, for who can do those? Yeah, operations. for who can do them. And huh. so I said, that's fine. You can make it whatever you want. So they put a set of criteria in that the only person that could meet them was me because nobody else had, you know, I had already done 50 cases. And so it slowed them down for about a year and a half in terms of actually having anybody else learn how to do the, that 
Because you're Surgery. the only one. Yeah, the only one around. And and then pretty soon Kaiser came to me and asked me if I would train the Kaiser doctors how to how to do this surgery. And so they identified two surgeons at each of the Northern California Kaiser facilities, and they would bring their patients to my hospital, and I'd teach them how to how to do the laparoscopic cholecystectomy until they until they'd become comfortable and proficient, and then they'd go back, and then they would teach the the other surgeons in their hospital. So it became kind of a trainer of the trainers, if you will, right. situation. Classic surgical apprenticeship, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like we're that's that's right around like more or less the late nineties. Yeah, late nineties. Right? Mm -hmm. And so you, you're just getting. Um, Comfortable and 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 there's I'm sure there's still a lot of excitement with with this new surgical skill and then Where does uh, I guess surgical robotics all because if, if you got excited about Videoscope, right? I'm I can't imagine what how you felt when you saw or heard the idea of a robot well what happened is I was um, uh, I Leading out the way I did with with the laparoscopic cholecystectomy, that caught the attention of industry. Hmm. And Ethicon um, came to me and a number of other surgeons that were doing similar things in their communities and asked if I was interested in working with them to develop equipment. And so, and I did that for a couple of years. Uh, went back to Somerville in New Jersey and we were working on a on an anastomotic device for, for uh, colon surgery. Um, and then Fred Mall heard about me uh, just by word of mouth and invited me to come to a company that he had just founded called Origin uh, Med Systems and uh, they were developing some balloon technology to, to enable laparoscopic surgery to be done outside the peritoneal cavity and hernia repairs primarily. And I've, so I, I worked with Fred uh, on, on that project for a couple of years. Um, and they finished and then they sold that company and so I went back doing my surgery. Mm -hmm. And then one, one morning Fred calls me and he says, hey, can we have lunch? And I, you never turn Fred Mall down. I mean, you, you only do that at your peril. I've 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 heard I've heard that many many times and that's actually funny because it's great to hear that in industry but it's something else to hear from a peer from him so oh, oh you know I Fred is a remarkable human being and so he called and said you know I, I've got an idea that I would like to kind of bounce off of you well, can we have lunch so he came up to our hospital and we had lunch, and that was the inception of Intuitive Surgical. And and that that happened here here out here in California, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where which so I got to ask for mainly for myself, but also the other like industry professionals because there's we always talk about the stories of when Intuitive and this whole thing was conceived. What restaurant? Where did this exactly happen? Because I'm sure some of us would like to go and sort of be like, "This is the place that it actually happened." Well, it, we were we had lunch at the cafeteria in the hospital. It was oh, no yeah, more, right. <laughs> no more dramatic than that. But he was describing an idea that he had about about um, electromechanical control of instruments. And there was a um, 
there was a company at uh, Stanford Research Institute or a, or a group who had developed a robotic surgery system that ultimately morphed into what Intuitive has become. Uh, and that was SRI, right? And that was SRI, Stanford Research Institute, and it was uh, it was research that was funded through the uh, Army or through the Defense Department. The idea being that if you had robotic surgery capability, you could scoop up the wounded soldier, bring them into a into a surgical facility right at the front lines, and have the um, uh, surgeon in the back line, safe from injury, uh, basically conduct the operation. That, that was their premise. Hmm. And so I, Fred asked me to go down and take a look at what they had. Well, I, I went down and, and they had a, a very primitive, um, but effective uh, telemanipulator, hmm. where you could work at a console and you could actually control instruments that worked inside a different cavity. Mm. And so I went down and looked at that and called Fred back and he said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, <laughs> you should do this. I, you, you should do this. I mean, I think it's preliminary and it's rudimentary and, you know, it's going to be a lot of work and a lot of development, but you should do this. And he said, well, that's what I thought, too. Fred and I have known each other ever since, and it's very uncommon for Fred and I to basically go different pathways. We almost always see things the same way, and this was no different. And so Fred asked me if I was interested in getting involved. And I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Well, I, th I thought you said you can. You can't. Fred Mall is somebody you can't. You can't refuse. No, I'm kidding. Well, okay. I'm kidding. <laughs> so, so uh, that began a uh, about a four or five year involvement with Intuitive, as he had just founded Intuitive with Rob Young. But it's, so it started at, as Origin and, and evolved into Intuitive, or Intuitive was its own? Thing. No, Origin was... Fred has started... Fred started out as a uh, surgery resident in Seattle, and he had an ID. He went into the lab for a year after a first year of residency, and he thought, you know, there's, there's safer ways of putting trocars into patients' abdomens than the way they're doing right. it. Right, yeah. And he developed the safety-shielded trocar. And he tried to sell that and, uh, and, and actually never went back to finish his surgery residency. Um, sold that idea to... Um, uh, was it U.S. Surgical? U.S. Surgical. And then he was free to, to go on to his next venture. Well, his next venture was Origin Med Systems. That's mm -hmm. where I met Fred. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was developing this balloon technology for doing retroperitoneal uh, surgery. Um, he sold that to Eli Lilly, and then he founded uh, Intuitive. So it's been a, a, a litany of companies. He went on from Intuitive to found uh, Hanson Medical, and then he's gone on from Hanson Medical to found uh, Oris uh, mm -hmm. Health. So uh, uh, everything he's touched has turned out just exactly the way he had uh, envisioned. With the exception, probably of Hanson. Hanson didn't didn't turn out to be as effective or as 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 uh, 
successful as the other companies, but its other companies have been hugely successful. Yeah. And yeah. so, at any rate, when he said, do I want to be involved, I said, I'd love to be involved. And so they brought me on as Intuitive's uh, first um, and, and probably principal advisor, a clinical advisor. And I saw that, you know, I think it was 200, 270 cases to be done before presenting to the FDA. And you did 50 of those. So you really pioneered this surgical robot and went to lands and bowels that surgeons have not gone to well, before. Well, yeah, I, I, think, I, I think the thing that the, the, the um, what, what really happened is we, we worked for a couple of years developing the concept that the, that the SRI had into a, an actual workable robot. Mm -hmm. um, and we actually took that robot. I mean, what we were actually trying to do was to develop a, a, a robot to do coronary artery surgery with. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it, it just made business sense for them to go after a high volume, um, expensive procedure. And so we were trying to go after coronary artery surgery. Well, it turns out that 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 that, um, that bar is a hard one to jump over. The visualization is difficult. You don't have any safety net underneath you. If something happens, you have a dead patient. And so it was very, very difficult and very challenging. We we tried back in uh, in Leipzig to to get a coronary artery anastomosis done, and we never were able to do it. We we took the system to France and uh, did some uh, mitral valve reconstructions with uh, Carpentier, and those went sort of okay. Um, but it it was uh, I can remember after after watching Carpentier do his first mitral valve surgery, he came back and held court with all the surgeons, all the company in the, his amphitheater there, and he walked in and wiped his brow and he said, well, you've succeeded in making a very easy operation very difficult. <laughs> uh, and it was really true. I, I mean, it really was true. Heart surgery is really a tough thing to get done. And so Intuitive was really hanging by its by its fingernails in terms of uh, whether it was going to survive or not. Yeah, I they, remember hearing about those. They, they may not see it that way, but that was really true. Yeah. Because we we had a product that would work. We had uh, FDA clearance for it. And, you know, the whole concept of Intuitive is to try and immerse the surgeon back into the surgical field and do so in a way that... Um, returns to them the, the capabilities that they lost when they went from open surgery to laparoscopic surgery, namely the wrist. And it was Fred and I who really insisted on having a wrist at the end of the instruments. Mm -hmm. And that enabled intuitive. Well, we got through the FDA process. We had clearance for this device, but we didn't have any operations that we could do with it. And that's a big problem, right? Yeah. And Fred called me one night and he said, hey, I've been thinking, this is Fred again for you, I've been thinking and looking at this, and he says, what do you think about a prostatectomy? Do you think we could do a prostatectomy with this device? 
where were you and where was he when that phone call happened? Because this is like robotic surgery history. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where Fred was. I was at home. (laughs) And, you know, it just makes all the sense in the world because you're operating in a small space. You need to be able to sew. And you need to have your instruments come from back uh, uh, by the television camera and focus down on a small area deep in a hole. Well, that's exactly what prostate surgery is about. You need to do all of those things. And so I said, Fred, it just seems like a, like a tremendously rich field to explore. I'd, why we didn't do that before? Mm-hmm. And what, what's fascinating about it, at least from, from, from myself and many of my peers who are in surgical robotics, you know, that moment is a classic case where they talk about the value of technology applied to procedure oh, to change the workflow. There's no question. There's I mean, no question w- about it. And not only change, you know, most prostatectomies are now done with the robot. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened is I said, well, let's, let's do this. I said, you know, the problem is, is that I don't do prostatectomies. And the, and the prostatectomists don't do laparoscopy, so, you know, he and I kind of looked at that and said, well, maybe we could work together. So I contacted the one guy out here who does most of the surgical, most of the prostatectomies and told him about this, and I said, are you willing to work with me? And they, yeah, so he was. So we started, and we did it in, in a series of stages. We, you know, we do part of the dissection and then, and then open and finish the operation. Uh, who, was was that, who was that surgeon that you reached out to? Jim Carroll. Jim Carroll. Out okay. here. Um, and then eventually we would just do a little bit more of each operation uh, each time we did it. And after about a half a dozen cases, we were able to get through the first one, um, got through it successfully, and it just went on from there. So. And what year was that? When, hmm. when, was that around 2000, 2001? Probably, yeah, probably 2000, 2001 or two, maybe, something like that. Yeah. And how, how did it... You know, on one side, and I'm, I'm going to speak specifically for general surgeons, you know, I've noticed with general surgeons that they're, they get excited about, about technology and new techniques and everything. But since, you know, what you alluded to earlier, the last, you know, few decades, specifically, I think, like, from the 70s up to the 90s, a lot of other specialties picked procedures off yep, from the have. general surgeons. So how did they, how was the sur- general surgical community how did the surgical community react when they heard about about the robot and, and the radical prostatectomy? Pretty negatively. And I heard about those days. Yeah, so t- 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 tell, us, tell us a little uh, more well, about that. Well, you know, uh, surgeons tend to be pretty conservative, mm-hmm. and you just you see it still today. They kind of want to do things the way they were trained, and not to step outside their comfort zone and not to reach and stretch and grow. It's just natural history for of surgeons to be that way. Um, and they're still, the majority of the surgeons still don't use the robot at our hospital. Um, so it was very slow to be adopted. Um, and in fact, the initial business plan for Intuitive was, was, uh, you know, not to sell the razor, but to sell the razor blade. You know, right. uh, they didn't care about uh, selling the capital equipment. They wanted the disposable instruments. The whole idea was we're going to have these disposable instruments. Well, they use them ten times, and we'll be able to charge for each use. And um, initially, they didn't really care whether the damn thing was used very much. 
um, they would be happy to to sell it, and the, the hospital was happy to sell it and sit it in the corner. Um, I didn't think that they were going to be successful in selling a million, million and a half dollar piece of equipment that, that didn't get used. But f in the early phases, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, but gradually, slowly, the surgeons began to come around and they began to see the same thing with robotic surgery that you saw with laparoscopic cholecystectomy in that if you didn't adopt the laparoscopic cholecystectomy, pretty much you're going to give up your cholecystectomy business. Mm -hmm. And I think that surgeons are now beginning to recognize the same thing with the robot. If they don't learn how to use the robot and accept it and adopt it, um, patients will go to surgeons who have. Mm -hmm. How much, how much, um, how much of it was influenced by the market and by, by patient demand? Oh, I think, I, 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 well, early on, uh, it was all patient demand. Um, later, as things went on, Intuitive got into the marketing game and started to promote uh, uh, robotic surgery, and they did it initially with the prostatectomy. Then they centered on hysterectomy. And now finally, although we have talked about this a lot with them, I said, you know, you, we ought to focus on, on hernias. Incisional hernias, are, they're very common. Uh, it's a high-volume procedure, and this is an ideal procedure, uh, device mm. for it because you're sewing on the underside, of, I mean, on the ceiling. Mm. And they just were not, they were focused on the prostatectomy and then the hysterectomy. Well, finally now, Intuitive has started to market um, incisional and even, even inguinal hernia repair. Mm -hmm. um, and so now the market is being driven by the company. Mm -hmm. And they've actually pretty well uh, saturated the market for hysterectomies. And now they've moved into general surgery. Uh, and they've had to because, you know, the, the prostatectomy, while it, it's a good operation in a lot of cases, uh, you know, I think increasingly people are recognizing that we're doing more of them than probably need to be done. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are being treated with radiation therapy now or, or just watchful waiting. And so the volume of prostate, prostate surgery is going down. Well, that's a death knell for a company like Intuitive, which had based, based its entire uh, success on, on the prostatectomy, and so they moved to the hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. And now they're branching out into, into other surgeries. And, and you, you can use this robot to do pretty much anything. You can do whipples with it or pancreatectomies or hepatectomies. It, there, there really is no limit to it. It's just a matter of how skilled you are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so... I'm guessing that once you got kind of a taste of that uh, that side of medicine, you know, introducing disruptive technology like that that really elevates the standard of care, you know, yep. and provides a better better treatment, yep. you know, for patients. That's right. So you, I guess you you were up for another ride with Red, and and you you spent some time as well with with Oris, correct? Right. Well, the uh, that's where I met Jeff. Actually, yeah, and for those listening, Jeff, Jeff is Jeff is my boss. It's yeah. Jeff Jeff Alvers, the VP of product. So yeah, yeah, Jeff was I hear employee not even number one. He was employee zero because he. <laughs> well, when I started, when I f was first uh, uh, invited to Intuitive by Fred, 
the, the company had 12 people in it. It was that's where it was. There was there was Fred, 12 engineers, and me, and we would meet every Friday and we would talk about you know what does this piece of equipment need to do. And I, I, I'll, I, this is another one of those things I'll never forget, I'll, the, the discussion about the wrist, because Fred and I were absolutely insistent, you need a wrist. And, you know, that was the engineers just rolled their eyes at us, and you know, but they kept persisting and we kept persisting and put a wrist on the end of those instruments and that's what made intuitive. Had we not done that, intuitive would have, would have died because, its major competitor was computer motion. Ah, and, yeah, educate know. the listeners on what happened with computer motion. Yeah, and they had a very pludgy kind of an ability to sort of do a wrist, but they never really, never really were able to execute it because they were using a platform that had existed primarily as a camera controller. And so they, rather than start out from scratch, they they used their existing platform as a uh, um, as a vehicle to try and put this wrist on. Well, it never ever worked, and it's dead now. Intuitive, on the other hand, started out with a slate with a blank slate. We could do anything we wanted, and so we um, built that system up to to have the capabilities that we wanted, and we weren't held in place by by some pre-existing platform. So Intuitive, you know, I, I worked with Intuitive for about five years and then, and then left about the same time Fred did. And then Fred called me again. <laughs> he says... Around what year? Where were you? Where was oh, he? God, it's been about six or seven years ago now. Uh, I was actually in the office at that time. And he said, I'm going to do this again. <laughs> and I said, what? And he said, well, I, I want to build a state-of-the-art robot. Because I can remember when, we were at, when Fred and I were at Intuitive, we kept looking at what we had and thinking ahead, you know, three or four years, well, what about if you could hang, maybe hang it from the ceiling or maybe do something different. And we were never able to do that. Well, so Fred founded Oris, and we um, we had lunch again. This was a little a little Mexican restaurant in Arinda, and we were talking about what would a state of the art robot look like because Intuitive Surgical was innovative. At the time, and and they still are. I don't 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 get me Absolutely. wrong, but it was built on technology at the time that was uh, probably ten years old, and it's basically the same system. Um, and Intuitive has the issue of being kind of tied to their platform, just the way uh, Computer Motion is tied to its platform. Mm -hmm. uh, Intuitive has got. 3,500 robots out there, they can't abandon them. And it's, it is a remarkable robot. Oh, there's it's no very, question. There's it's no very question. good for what, it, for what it's yeah. focused on. There's no question about it, and, and it has been beautifully engineered and beautifully built. There's no question about that. But you kind of look at it and say, well, this is 
2018, can we do better? Can we do different? And so Fred and I started to talk about it, and it was his idea again. He, came, he says, well, what do you think about putting it on the bed? This has been, it's got to be six or seven years ago now. He says, what about putting it on the bed? And you're thinking the big Da Vinci you're like, how are we going to make, yeah. Oh, man, maybe you could do that. I mean, you know, you'd kind of have to fold it up somehow. And he says, well, yeah, maybe you could. You could put it in the bed and he says, oh, you mean so like when somebody turns it on, it, it kind of transforms into a robot. And he said, yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, you're talking about building a transformer. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was Oris. And so we started out at Oris. Fred and I knew exactly what we wanted to build and what needed to be built, absolutely. And we started and kept running into roadblocks because the engineers would keep telling us, you can't do that. You can't build, you can't put the robot down there. It won't ever work. And we kept pushing back at them. And they kept pushing back at us, and we went on for about three or four years that way. And, uh, and at one point, we then said, okay, it, 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 before you say it can't be built, let's at least try and see what we come up with. Because I've seen too many times where people will say, oh, look, this is going to be great here, you know, this idea, and then you actually get it in your hands and it it just doesn't work or it's not going to be useful. And the same, just the opposite, where, um, you know, until you really try it, you don't know how well it's going to work. And those bloody engineers came up with the engineering uh, design that turned the mathematics on its head, and it is working. And it's a. It, I have to say, it's a beautiful robot. Yeah. I, I, I got to see it in person, and you know, it's quite remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. So three, four years just pushing back and forth. Yeah. And, you know, there's that saying that you know, with pressure, you can do one of two things: you can either use it to burst pipes, or you can make diamonds. And it looks like I mean, you guys <laughs> definitely made some diamonds. Well, I, you know, it's it's been an amazing story, and uh, it, it's been an amazing, uh, really, an amazing ride. It, it, you know, it's like Henry Ford says, you know. People say it can't be done until somebody does it, you know? Right. And with, with Oris's robot, was it, was it similar to Intuitive in the sense that you guys started out with one procedure and realized we don't have a business here, or it does not fit here, and then you changed it to what it's being used No, it's today. just the opposite. It's the huh. opposite. What, 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 what we were doing at Oris is, are doing at Oris, is to develop the next state-of-the-art 21st century robot. Um, we certainly are, are uh, climbing on the shoulders of Intuitive to get there, but it's a, it's a robot that has uh, capabilities that have been designed into it not to do a specific procedure, but to do every procedure. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that kind of goes to what the engineers have put into it. It's been a tremendous amount of thought that has gone into where we are and uh, it is to get us to be able to gain access to anywhere in the abdomen and do anything. So it's not it, it, intuitive. We were after the coronary artery bypass, but at Oris, we're after all of surgery. Mm. And definitely the way the 
the way the system is set up, the way it moves, the uh, uh, elegance of it, I, I can definitely see it doing that. The, the main thing that it, I guess, was commercialized for was for uh, uh, lung biopsies, correct? Well, actually, uh, uh, that, that's the Monarch, mm-hmm. and th- that's, that's a flexible platform for bronchoscopy. Mm-hmm. Now, we can do that with the system that we have. But they, they've basically taken that procedure and, and built a cart around that. You know, that's the Monarch system, mm-hmm. uh, which has been introduced already. Um, and, you know, that was the thing that Fred brought with him from Hansen is, is flexible endoscopy. And so he's got a lot of experience and capability in being able to move flexible instruments around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Monarch is is different than the iPlatform. The iPlatform being a, a, um, a primarily a laparoscopic device. God, I see. And is that um, is that public knowledge, by the way, the iPlatform? Um. You know, I don't know. I, I would think it is. I mean, we've, we've been acquired by, by uh, Johnson & Johnson. And was, so for you, I mean, acquisition's always exciting, right? But, you know, things change when that happens. So for you, are you still, are you still involved with Oris and Oh, yeah. So I'm wondering what, the nec- what that next phone call is going to be from Fred, because... You know, <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't even begin to venture a guess at that. Um, I I think that Fred is committed to Oris and to see that it is successful. And it's a great team to have. He's too. got a, a a lot left to do, so I don't think he needs a next project. I think he's got this one. He's got plenty on his. Yeah. And you know, again, want to be mindful of your time, and we'll we'll wrap this up shortly. But uh, you know, just. Uh, you know, out of curiosity, you know, the one thing that we've noticed in the last few years, uh, we being the, the medical device and medical technology industry, is that now, um, you know, you, you have these large tech giants, uh, Apple, Google, Microsoft, that they're entering highly uh, regulated public sectors like education, transportation, healthcare is a big, a big, a big one. And of course, with that, there's this advent of, of big data artificial intelligence. As a surgeon, I mean, what are your thoughts about that? You know, how, how do you think the surgical community looks at that? Where's the value in it? I have no idea, and I don't think they do either. I've never yet had anybody be able to explain to me how they're going to use this big data. Now, that having been said, I would be the first one to acknowledge that uh, sometimes you need to build it and try it and you know the whole field of dreams thing. If it, you know if you build it, they will come. Uh, maybe once this thing gets uh, uh, realized, and that we will find things about it and for its use that we don't right now, it's a little hard for me to uh, to envision where this big data story is going. I mean, I know Google is very, very uh, committed to it. Um, That's a big part of what Verb is all about. But um, 
I've not yet been able to have anybody really describe to me concretely how that's going to be translated into better patient care. Yeah, that's a that's a, that's an important. I mean, it may be it may be translatable into less expensive patient care, but I don't see how it's going to get translated into better patient care. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I, but I would be the first one to to say, uh, you know, that story hadn't been written yet, mm -hmm. and uh, um, you know, once we understand what big data is, then we may be able to find a use for it. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll ask you this, this question that I know that a lot of uh, people, in, at least in the surgical robotics world, wonder. Um, if you say had, it, let's say, a robot or a, let's say a smart, a smart surgical OR that could um, you know, monitor your movements as a surgeon, let's say your success rate, so just, like, just like as if you, know, if you watch a, a pro football or basketball game, you can get stats on a player. Oh, sure, sure. On one side, I feel like I think surgeons, knowing their how competitive they are, they, they would in, they would enjoy that. But on the other side, I don't know if they would enjoy having that kind of no. big, like Big Brother. No, they'll know. be scared to death of it. I'll just tell you. And, to, and tell, tell, educate us why. At least as of right now. Now, now the 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 face of medicine is changing tremendously. With uh, you know, like our hospital is being bought up uh, by uh, uh, other larger companies. Uh, Nobody's know. independent anymore. No, it's too no. hard. <laughs> you know, Stanford owns part of uh, Valley and Valley Care Hospital, and uh, UCSF owns part of uh, John Muir. And uh, um, so, it, it, you know, the, the idea of going into practice and hanging up your shingle and being available and good and and uh, technically skilled uh, is not as important now as it used to be. Mm -hmm. But uh, I can tell you that surgeons are threatened by, I may be saying things I shouldn't hear, but surgeons tend to be threatened by somebody looking over their shoulder and uh, in a critical fashion. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, they don't want to be told how to how to do this cold cystectomy. If I want to do this cold cystectomy open, I should be able to do it open, right? Well, I guess uh, you go through five, six years of training getting yeah, told what to do. You know, <laughs> I, I don't want somebody to telling me that I shouldn't have converted this operation from a laparoscopic procedure to an open procedure because I was there and I know what the difficulties were and, or that it takes me um, twice as long to do this operation as it does Dr. Jones. They're, they're threatened by that, or, or that, uh, that I have uh, fewer complications than Dr. Smith does. Um, they're threatened by that. And, but, it's, but it's on the way, and so get used to it. Right. Yeah. And it just sounds like, I guess one of the things is to, you know, the importance, and again, I mean, we do this in the industry, but it's important to say that you, you have to spend as much time as possible side by side with physicians developing these technologies versus you know what I've seen at least in the past with companies I fortunately did not work for uh, showing up and something being there that day and it's like you have no choice you got to use this yeah no th th that's right I mean I think that the, the the input of people that are using the device or potentially could use the device is hugely important and a company is foolish to not recognize that.
Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are lots of different ways of, of doing a surgical procedure, and uh, from draping to you know to closing, and and uh, and all the steps in between, and so. Uh, and that's one of the things that I think that they're doing such a wonderful job of or at Oris for is um, we have given a huge amount of thought to exactly that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Well, before we end, I got to ask you know one final question. A lot of uh, we do have a lot of uh, medical students and residents who do listen to this, and I'm sure a lot of pre-medical students at this point. Um, but you know, in your career as a physician. Are there any books that had, you know, an influence on, on, on the way you are as a leader, as a physician, um, anything that you would recommend to, to No, the, it's the people that uh, have impacted my life, the Blaisdells and the Dumphys of the world and the Fred Malls of the world. Uh, I guess my advice to those that are just starting out is to... Um, Diversify and don't shut off avenues that um, hold promise for you because making a living now of just doing piecework in surgery is going to be increasingly difficult. And so um, keep your options open. And, and that's basically what has what has led my career in the path that it went. Uh, I, I spend as much time with Fred now and Fred with his company as I do in my practice. Um, and had I not taken that phone call from Dr. Mall 25 years ago, that whole avenue would have been shut down to me. Mm. And so keep keep your options open. Mm. And I think, um, you know, so, some, uh, so a lot of my classmates, they're, they're just getting out of residency and so you, they're kind of lifting their head up to see the world. And you know, I think there's this exciting opportunity that a lot of young physicians don't know about, which is to look for those opportunities yeah, to right. advise, partner, yeah. get involved with technology, yeah. and have a hand in developing. And it takes time to do that. You know, you you, you need to develop the um, the relationships. Um, they need to be trusted. You need to be honest. And upfront, and um, and keep confidences, um, and if you do that, eventually these opportunities will gravitate to you. But if you don't, they'll be shut off. Hmm. And um, um, so th that would be my advice. I d don't limit yourself to doing piecework would be my my advice to anybody coming out of residency now. Right. Well, Dr. Gardner, hey, I, we really appreciate you taking time out of your practice to sit down and chat with us and, you know, you share a bit of the story because I'm telling you, there's a lot of people who are like, you know, somebody should record this or write it down <laughs> or something. And, we, you know, Jeff said, you know, you want to go talk to Dr. Gardner? I said, absolutely. <laughs> so I, we, we really appreciate it. I gave a, I gave a lecture in, in Taiwan a couple years ago and one of the, it was an hour lecture, and it was a, a seminar. And one of the participants in the seminar listened to the story that I was telling about Intuitive and the founder of Intuitive and what happened. And he came up to me and says, you need to write a book. And I said, well, you know, I'll write it for you. <laughs> so 
Fred and I have never done that, but I've, I've told Fred that before. He, you know, he, he needs to sit down with somebody that can write his story because it's an amazing, it's an amazing American success story. Really uh, no, absolutely. And I, absolutely. I call him the, the 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 Steve Jobs of the medical device industry, and I, I think it's I don't think a, that's too far off accurate description of what he's done. He's a lot nicer, though. I think <laughs> uh, that's for sure. No, no. Fred is not only nice; he's uh, he's um, he's a very loyal person too. No, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I've been at least fortunate enough for me. I've all three. No, the last two companies I've been with, they, they've been you know companies, that, companies. Yeah, Fred companies, or he's been he's been on the board, and so yep. I've been very fortunate to yep. uh, work with them. And actually. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have something to share with you. When I, when I first left medical school, um, you know, uh, it, I, I loved medicine, but you know, medical school being a physician, I just figured out wasn't for me. And I had a father who's a surgeon, and decided, uh, you know, he's very supportive of it. Yeah, right. I remember that time I was very scared. I didn't, you know, I we didn't have LinkedIn or Facebook. You know, we did have Facebook, but I I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I remember um, my father and some of his friends saying, you know, don't worry, you'll be okay. There's, there's actually a couple, couple of surgeons who, 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 you know, either left med school or they left residency and, and, and they're involved in technology and you should look into med device. And so, yeah. um, you know, I appreciate, you know, Fred and, and surgeons like you as well who've, you know, not only pioneered an industry for us, but, you know, really led by example and uh, opened everybody's eyes to the idea of, you know, Trying new technology, doing something new and innovative to push, sort of push the envelope yeah. and do things better. That's what it's all about. No, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, you bet you. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Hills and Valleys. If you haven't already, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on our podcast. That way you're notified of new episodes as they're released. And if you're not already, please go ahead and follow Potrero Medical on all our social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And we'll see you next time.